0: From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a small or two and make yourself very uncomfortable. Hey folks. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Superpowers School podcast. I'm Paddy Dunder, your host. And in today's episode, I have a guest who is really focusing on giving and uh, this whole notion of giving. And so I'm really excited to know more about it. But he's the founder of Givers University and he's the author of a book called Give to Be Great. Uh, So I'd like to welcome EA Salkovitz to the show. And by the way, EA. Did I pronounce your surname okay, Leo?
1: You nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you for having (laughs) me on your show.
0: Oh, you're welcome. And yeah, I'm really excited to know more about you and your background. I'd like to take you right back, actually, to some of your early years. And I was just reading up on your profile and your background, and you became a millionaire at quite a young
1: age. So would you like to share more about your early days? Sure, and, and be happy to. And thank you for asking. I'm, I live in Michigan now, Michigan, United States, and um, originally born in the uh, Chicagoland area and I was the son of a milkman. So back then, uh, you know, there was men that, you know, then they were all, they're pretty much men from what I saw because you had to be in order to carry all that ice. But my father was a milkman and they'd get up at three in the morning and go, you know, and, and back then milk was in glass uh, jugs, glass gallons. And and the only trucks that were refrigerated were the big 18 wheelers. So all the delivery trucks, like my father had his own delivery truck, they had to go chop their own ice. So you get up at three in the morning and go at these six foot slabs of ice with an ice pick and chop them down and put that on the milk. And that's why I kept the milk cold all day while I was delivering it. So, you know, very manual to say the least and, and a humble upbringing. You know, my father, one man operation, one truck, one guy, and here I am at five years old helping him on the route whenever I could. I enjoyed it and, you know, being with my father and working that kind of thing. But the the point I want to make is it was nothing unusual about my background. You know, it was very humble and a regular, ordinary, average kind of thing. And then at the ripe old age of 16, Patty, I took my first step into becoming prosperous and I became a janitor. And I didn't mind being a janitor because business was always picking up. So here I was, ripe old age of 16. And you think as a janitor, you know, that's a sort of a lowly profession, and I had two extraordinary events happen to me while I was a janitor. One, at 16, I was able to be bonded, which means insured uh, so that if my buffer, when I was cleaning a place, if my buffer hit, some piece of equipment insurance company would pay for it, right? So I was able, and that allowed me to be in ex- places that had expensive equipment. It allowed me to be in a very expensive homes. And one of the homes I cleaned of a lady, her name won't mean anything until I make the movie reference. Then those that have seen the movie will know who I'm talking about. I cleaned this lady's house every Wednesday. Her name was June Martino. And I lived in that area. I lived in this area, the greater Oak Brook area. And there was a movie out a couple of years ago. It's still available on streaming and probably will be for some time because it's actually a pretty good view. The name of the movie is called The Founder. It's about McDonald's and uh, Michael Keaton plays Ray Kroc. Uh, Did you catch it by any chance? I know it well and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was absolutely amazing. Yeah. All right. In the movie... The and, and I lived, by, I I witnessed the whole phenomenon in my lifetime. You know, the first franchise number, what he called McDonald's number one, drove by it probably a hundred times because it was on the end of our milk route with my father. So I witnessed the whole phenomenon. Lived right there in Oakbrook, right during the movie. Michael Keaton playing Ray Kroc, and by the way, Ray wasn't that way. That's all Hollywood spin. At the beginning, it says this is based on a true story, and that's true. It's based on a true story, but. It's not the true story. <laughs> it's based on it, right? It's, so there's a lot of Hollywood spin, and they painted Ray away. He really wasn't that way at all, but none, nonetheless, there are certain events that are nodded to that are correct. And uh, so through the movie, Michael Keaton, Ray Kroc, is talking to this lady outside his office. He says, June, this June, that. that's June Martino. That lady is the lady whose house I cleaned every Wednesday. And what was interesting was that when I met her, she already had the third most controlling stock in McDonald's. And later on, by the way, after I had met her, she was, interestingly enough, the very first woman to ever trade on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And she was an amazing lady. And uh, a story I usually don't get the opportunity to share, but I'll share just a miniaturized version. She was so nice and so approachable. And I was in her house every Wednesday. She had a full-time maiden butler, and I was there to clean the pool and the garage and some of the heavier stuff. And uh, so one day I went up to June and I just, cause she was always so nice and friendly. And I asked her about McDonald's and she put her arm around me, brought me in the kitchen and the entire day, Patty, I'm a 16 year old kid, told me the entire story from where the movie begins, where, which was so weird when I saw the movie that, you know, where he was a milkshake salesman, basically a mixer salesman for uh, Prince Castle and how she had worked for him then. And then all the way how he met the brothers and all the way through. And what was interesting was that during the movie, there's a time where June Martino, June goes to Ray Crock, Michael Keaton and says, we're out of money. We don't have any money. That causes him to call the brothers and they have an argument on the phone. He needs more percentage. They need more, you know, et cetera. It's a drama scene. But anyway, she tells me about that happening. And she said that Ray couldn't afford to pay her. So he paid her in worthless company stock worth less than zero, by the way. Because they had no money. It was under, you know, was zero and under. Wow. And they owed more than they had. And he agreed to take the calls from bill collectors in case they called her and wanted money from her on a personal, you know, personal accounts, that kind of thing. So I asked her, I said, June, I'm a janitor. I work Friday to Friday. If I don't get paid on Friday, I'm not showing on Saturday. I need that paycheck. I live paycheck to paycheck. Why did you do it? And you know, Patty, she sat back in her chair and stared at me. And it was only for like 10 seconds, but it seemed like 30 minutes because she's staring right at me. And I know she's not home. She just left. And I just, this not no 16 years old, yours truly, just asked her a question no one ever asked her before. Everyone wanted to know what happened with McDonald's, but no one wanted to know why. And I just say, why did you do it? Why did you work for nothing? I wouldn't have done that. Why'd you do it? And when she spoke, I made the hair stand up on the back of my neck because the way she said it and, the, and the, so when I asked her, why did you do it after the pause? And she thought, her answer was, because I believed in Ray. And I thought, man, I remember my first thought, Patty was, that's it. I need to find a Ray Kroc. That's it. That's my answer. I don't even know what questions I need to ask. I'm a son of a milkman, already burnt out janitor. And I don't know what questions I should be asking, let alone, you know, or how to become successful. I need, where would I find my Ray Kroc? I need a Ray Croc. Certainly didn't work out bad for her. I'm cleaning her. It was a million dollar home back then when I was 16 years old. So, I mean, I'm I'm thinking I I need to find one of these. I need to find this. And it wasn't two or three months later, we got a phone call at the office for a gentleman that was opening a diamond store in the Chicago area. They need to see some carpeting. My boss sent me and that man offered me a job. That man also became my Ray Kroc. And. He was an amazing gentleman. And just to share with you, I mean, he became the father I never had, even though I had a father and I became the son he never had, even though he had a son. And we were truly that close. And, uh, and he shared with me a very interesting story I'd like to share with your listeners. You know, for those that think the deck is really stacked against you, listen to this story. Here he was, my mentor, telling me about what it was like to grow up in the United States. There was a th- an event called the Great Depression. And what it was like to grow up in this great depression. And he said, no one had any money. No one had any. He said, people were jumping off of buildings, committing suicide because they'd lost their fortunes, multi-mile long soup kitchen lines just to get a bowl of soup, multi-mile long. He said, no one had money. He said, for some of our meals, we even ate cardboard. Wow. That's tough. Right, And he said that one day he was walking and he sort of could just get out and he went by this store and he'd been going by it every day and always saw the same guy standing in the back. So he just went in one day just to talk. No one had money. No one was hiring. It wasn't working. So he, as he talked with the gentleman, he was in a store and it was full of sewing machines. And it turned out this man was the owner of the store. And he said, he said, yeah, I don't have any customers because no one has any money. They're trying to put food on their table. They're not going to buy a sewing machine. That's for sure. And so my mentor had this flash in his mind and he said, how about if I help you sell some of these? Like the I said, I'm open. What do you have in mind? He said, right now they're all paid for and they're collecting dust. He said, no one's come. No one comes in the store. I can't even afford employees. It's just me. Right. He said, well, this is what I think we should do. He said, let's sell them on payments instead of having people buy the whole thing. And he said, we'll split the payments and I'll guarantee the sewing machine if someone walks on it. And he said, so you'll never be out any money. The guy says, man, go for it. You know, these things are just collecting dust. Do it. So the next thing my mentor did was he put together a flyer and posted it everywhere. And the flyer said, women to work from home. He could. He said he couldn't keep up with the response because everyone needed money. No one was hiring. The fact that anyone was hiring in any way was extraordinary. So he put together a way where he built together this massive community of women to work from home. He sold them the sewing machines on payments, gave them the patterns to sew with, gave them the material to sew, and guaranteed he would buy the clothing from them, thus guaranteeing their income so that they could make the payments on the sewing machine and have a reasonable wage and a good wage left over. So there was this huge community built of all of these women. Then he bought this clothing from the women and Then sold it to clothing stores and department stores as handmade, high quality, deeply discounted clothing for people that needed to buy clothing that didn't have a lot of money, but still wanted good value. So in one year's time, Patty, while people are jumping off of buildings, multi-mile long soup kitchen lines, he earned $1 million. So on that story, I share with your listeners, if you think business is tough, what's your excuse? And my mentor shared with me, he said, what I really did, because the story was astonishing to me. I mean, this was just, wow, this is incredible, right? And and he said, the thing that was interesting was he said, it was an idea. And he said, I can share with you as you go through life, you will never have money problems. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, you won't. He said, you'll have idea problems but you won't have money problems. And he taught me the distinction between those two. Every business, every solution starts with an idea. And it starts with asking ourselves the right questions. Inadvertently, Patty, I stumbled across the right question when I said, where would I find my rape rock? Where would I, you know, we ask the right questions, we get the right answers. Most people go through life asking the wrong questions. So guess what, they get the wrong answers. (laughs) And not only that, then they're surprised they got the wrong answer when that's what they were asking all along, right? And so he taught me the power. He said, don't worry about the answers in life. The answers are always there. They're omnipresent. He said, learn how to ask the right questions. And he said, our lives become self-fulfilling prophecies. All the answers that we ask will always appear and they will be there. He said, People go through their lives asking the wrong questions. That's why they keep getting the wrong answer. And he shared with me these nuggets, if you will. And at 19 years old, I finally asked him. I said, Sam, his name was Sam Robbins. I said, Sam, will you teach me everything? I mean, all of it. Just I don't hold back. I want to learn it all. And he said, okay, I will. But I want one thing from you. He said, when the time is right and you will know that time, I want you to teach as many people as you possibly can, everything that I taught you. So that has in fact, that vow and that oath I made to my mentor at 19 years old, has manifested itself into Givers University. And through the courses of those things, I learned from him under his tutelage, under his mentorship, I was blessed. I became a millionaire at 23 years old. The first year I earned a million dollars in one year in salary, after I paid all of my taxes, I had a million dollars left in my pocket that year. I was 33, I was 33 years old. It was 1989. Right? So I, I can share with you that I didn't do all those things. I love your show because it's named Superpowers and I can share with your listeners. I only had one superpower. It was simple. I had the ability to say, you know, I don't know about that. Could you teach me about that, please? I'd love to learn. See, where everyone else is so interested in being preeminent and being the smartest person in the room. And I'm from the school. If you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room. (laughs) You know, you you need to be in learning. So my only superpower, Patty, was the ability through my learning from my mentor, which is why I'm such an advocate for mentoring. For your listeners, if you have a business, if you're a freelancer and you don't have a mentor, if you're an entrepreneur and you don't have a mentor, in my world, Patty, we call that naive. You are opening yourself up to make so many mistakes, and just out of nothing more than ego, because the person doesn't have the ability to say, "I don't know about that." Could I? Could you teach me? Because they, you know, they want everyone wants to look so smart today. That's not where the power is. The power is in the ability to say, "I don't know about that. I'd love to learn. Could you teach me about that?" And that was the only superpower I had, and the blessings I had through my life as a direct result of my keeping attached to being son of a milkman, burnt out janitor.
0: Wow. Honestly, I was listening to you there very patiently. I just wanted to hear those words because I, th- I think a number of those stories really resonate with me. My, my mother, she came to England as an immigrant way back in the sixties and she ended up becoming a sewing machinist. So, your story of oh, wow sewing machinist was particularly, you know, it struck a chord with me because I grew up with that sewing machine in the house and her working all hours. It's nothing. Even till, you know, the early hours of the morning, she would have to sew. And whilst a lot of school kids would be, you know, in bed sleeping, I'd be there trying to drain out the noise of that sewing machine going off in the background. But she had to do it. You know, that was the way she paid the bills. And I, I think the your whole message around finding a mentor, oh, that's amazing because <clears throat> I too strongly believe when you find those characters in your life, those people that are willing to give, right? They're willing to pass on their knowledge. Then we should embrace it with both hands. Now, not everybody's like that. Right. So that's the other thing I think I've sometimes longed for someone like Ray, you know, someone who's going to give me their words of wisdom, but they're so hard to find. But when you do absolutely grab them with both hands. So my next question was really about if somebody out there is thinking about finding a mentor. And as you mentioned, it's so important. How do you go about that? Like,
1: where do you start? That's a great question. Well, one of the things we teach at Givers University really is uh, we teach, if I put it down, the sifted it to one word, the word would be discernment. And we teach a skill that simply is not being taught anywhere else today. I've done close to 160 interviews since last April on podcasts. And not one time has anyone said, I know someone else teaching that. Not even the, the concept of it. Here's the skill we teach. We teach, first of all, I say to your listeners, we love everybody. I say it again emphatically. We love everybody. And we teach a skill and the skill is as follows. We teach people how to separate the person who we love from their deeds, which we may not love. And by separating them, we now begin to become more discerning by not listening necessarily to the words, but observing their deeds. And we teach people an observation skill, how to be observant, how to discern in your relationships. so that when you see people doing specific things, you now can discern and decide, should I, maybe I should bring them closer into my life because they're doing the things that they should be doing. Or when I see them doing other things they shouldn't be doing, maybe I should begin respectfully, not rude or nasty, respectfully distance myself from them. Because if I bring them in closer, they're gonna make me collateral damage. And I'm gonna be stopping out fires, not of my making. My stress level is gonna go up, not of my making. And it's easier to not have that person in my life or at least be respectfully distanced from them. So we teach the skill. We even have checklists where we've literally, Patty, sifted it down into an actual checklist One of them, one of my favorite ones, it's called the 25 Dues. These are the 25 things, the deeds. You will watch people do the 25 that givers do and the 25 that takers do. And you literally can go down a checklist at the bottom, total it, and you know exactly right there. So when we say giver, we're not labeling a person. When we say taker, we're not labeling a person. We're labeling the deeds of that person. And there's a very important distinction there. Because we love everybody, but we teach people, there are certain people you want to have in your life. So here's the question. You In know, an interview I did a number of back, uh, the gentleman said, wow, this is really great stuff. In fact, you know what? I just read this book and this book said, I need to have five good people around me. I said, you're right, you do. One question, which five? And all of a sudden he stared at me with this blank look. I said, do you see my point? No one's teaching which five. How do you discern which of those you should have? as you said so astutely, Patty, was to have, how do you discern who's going to be your mentor? What are the things you look for? And it's not their words. Because as we say at Givers University, your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. In other words, we teach, by the way, I practiced that right before I said it. Anyway, we teach people, you know, hear, discern and watch their deeds and you will see the real person. You'll see. Do you want them into your life or not? I just talked with a gentleman that is forming a, a community. We're helping him do that, and you know, he, he said, "This is." He said, "I've never seen before an actual template of how to do something step by step." He said, "I." I he said, "You've already helped me where I was going to go down path Y, and I really needed to go down path X." He said, "This is so excellent." With the, and and I shared with him. I said, "I didn't make up any of this stuff. None of it. I was just." a conduit part of it was because my mentor taught me i can do it what anyway so the so here we are as this incredible opportunity that are out there with us today and you know we're sharing with people and teaching people the difference between givers communities and takers communities because there is a difference and on that point actually it
0: sounds like to me from what you're saying is be selective about who you bring into your life as that mentor rather than just going with somebody who agrees to be your mentor. Because I, I think for many of us, we, we feel quite humbled. If somebody says, hey, I'll, I'll be your mentor, I'd go, yeah, great, without perhaps really thinking that through and thinking, well, hang on, is this the right person for me? Do they exemplify all of the things that I want to learn? So, would that be a correct statement?
1: To be more selective about the people you bring, and and those five people, that, that's what discernment is. You're exactly right. You said it right. You nailed it right there. You split the you a Robin Hood. You split the arrow with the arrow. So the you know and, and that's what the sermon is all about. And it's not being taught today. You know. Yeah. You're right. In fact, I, I love the example you just used there. You know, we're almost, we're humbled when someone says, "Yeah, I'll help teach you." But what if they're going to teach you the wrong way? You yeah. know, it's just like you know the. Cliches are cliches because they're usually true, but not always. They're not always true. One of them that I take issue is practice makes perfect. Practice does not make perfect. It never made perfect. Practice makes perfect. Just because you did something a lot of times, you could have done it wrong a lot of times. (laughs) And you may be continuing to do it wrong a lot of times, right? When I was becoming a, right in the midst of becoming a commercial pilot in years past, that my, after I got my private ticket and I was going into more advanced, I've got a better instructor because it was more advanced ratings. I was going for my instrument rating and multi-engine complex ratings. And after he was with me with one landing, he goes, what did you just do? And I said, what do you mean I landed my plane? He said, that's a landing. He said, you're beating the baloney out of all of your passengers. He said, he, and, and I said, well, my, my, The instructor taught me that any landing you can walk away from is a good one. (laughs) He said, well, he said, I have to tell you, he said, you are pushing the envelope on that one. He said, wait, why are you landing that way? I said, well, that's the way I was taught and everyone said it was okay. He said, well, you're doing it wrong. He said, let me teach you the proper way. He said, I can teach you how to every single time when you bring that plane in, you'll feel the wheels, you'll feel the weight transfer from the wings onto the wheels and the wheels will start to do like a little tweet that they do when they start to spin up and spool up. And he said, your passengers won't even know you landed. I said, man, I want to learn that. See, So the point was, I was doing something over and over again. I thought it was okay. I was going to say I I must've been
0: in a plane with some of those pilots because I certainly have had some bumpy landings in the past as well. So uh, maybe they need this other mentor in their lives for sure.
1: Yeah. The, yeah, the, We call it the old, the brick three approach. <laughs> it comes out like a brick. <laughs> so, you know, so with, with those experiences, discernment is so important. And with our discernment of selecting a mentor, you want to have number one, a mentor that's done it, not a wannabe. I mean, there's so many people say, I can teach you and I can coach you and I can, and they've never done it themselves. All you're really going to be doing is paying for their education, whether you know it or not, that's what you're doing. You want a mentor that's done it. Someone who can show this is what I've done because in order for them to be able to say exactly what they have accomplished and done along with that are all the lessons of what not to do. And there's where you want to learn. As opposed to the person who, and I lovingly, and I say this favorably, I call them educated idiots. They have all of the book information that they can spew back at you, but zero execution and implementation skills. They don't know how to execute. They don't know how to implement any of the stuff. They just learned it in a book or they attended some class and now I'm a coach, you know, and, and, and all they're doing really is making money off of coaching and not really delivering the kind of service they could be by learning how to do it themselves first. and then do it. So, you know, the old cliche of those who can't teach, that's wrong. The best teachers and the best mentors are those who have done it and can prove it.
0: Got it. No, I, again, can relate to that. I've definitely come across many, many people who will teach you all the theory, but as soon as you ask them a practical question, they just look at you with a blank look or they'll regurgitate some case study that they've read about and yeah uh, yeah but that's okay but you weren't there so where's the example yeah. of, of you having been <laughs> through that and walked a walk right so absolutely
1: exactly right man